0: Welcome into the Storied Podcast. This week we talk mule deer, two stories with similarities, but also a lot of differences. One taking place in the high desert chasing velvet mule deer bucks in Utah, and one in timber country, pre-rut mule deer in Montana. So first, we're going to start off talking food, and um, I'll start it off, I guess. So this week i guess i had uh some deer heart from that whitetail we told the story from a few weeks back and that one i just pretty much uh took cleaned up the heart cleaned up all those um little little valves and things like that and cubed it up a little small put in a crock pot along with um some cream of mushroom soup let that cook throughout the day and um uh did some rice and put it over rice and and ate that till I couldn't eat anymore because that's one of my favorite meals in the world. But
1: that's got to be a good, good stick to your belly filler for the November month. You know, like slow cooker yeah. meal that really fills you up and really gives you some gumption. Um, I have a question about that: Is do you do you brown the heart before you throw it in the slow cooker?
0: So I did one time, and I didn't see any difference. So now I just cut it up in small little cubes. I don't even brown it. Yeah. And then when you're I just clean it-, it up good. Good. That's that's the main. That's and then then when you're eating
1: it after it's slow cooked, it's it's like definitely like a I wouldn't say mushy texture, but it's not. It's it's like a fine texture. It's not like other meat, right? Yeah, it's there's no grain to it.
0: Yeah, and it's not it's not you know too chewy because it's slow cooked a little bit. It is a little. It's not really mushy either. I don't know. It's a weird. Yeah, you just have to try it. It's a weird taste, but. That's good. That's Like I said, that's one of my favorite meals. When you're eating to your heart, you know you're successful.
1: <laughs> well, you also, know that you, didn't, uh, you also know that you didn't shoot it through the heart, probably.
0: Yeah, shoot. Well, with an arrow, <laughs> you, still, you, still, arrow you still could eat it. I, I don't know. I think know. my elk heart I still ate, and I shot that one through the heart.
1: I have no problems with uh, not shooting an uh, animal through the heart. I would rather shoot it through the lungs because I want to eat that heart.
0: Yeah, you know? exactly.
1: I I think but, I got I think I got four meals out of my elk cart.
0: Yeah. People yep, don't realize think, how
1: much meat it is.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's two of your fists or, yeah. or more, you know. But what were you eating this week, Ruben?
1: So I had uh some green winged teal. Um mm. we'll get into how I acquired those real quick with our little what we've been up to lately section, but basically, uh, you clean the teal by pulling that whole breastbone off with the meat, with the breasts on it. Otherwise I feel like, um, you know, you lose, you lose some of the fringe to cooking. You, you, you that can happen with a lot of smaller cuts of meat. You always want to leave a little bit of extra on there because even, even a bigger piece of a backstrap or something, you're going to, you're going to kind of shrink that up and outside of it's going to become cooked and not, you know, not the consistency of the meat inside. It'll be that crisp outside edge, which adds flavor, but you kind of like, you know, you you lose volume a little bit and on something as small as a teal. I mean, I have cut the breasts out plenty of times before, but All of a sudden, you lose a little bit onto the breastplate that you can't quite get off because you don't cut it so cleanly. And then when you cook it, the the outside, you know, you lose that edge. And next thing you know, you like have almost half the meat that you started with after you're done cooking it. So you leave it on the breastplate, and I like to leave the skin on too a little
0: bit. I think, um, like, do uh, it also? Does it make it taste better when it's on the bone like that, or?
1: I, yeah, I would imagine so. Um, yeah, yeah, bone always gives some flavor. Uh, but the other yeah. thing that makes it taste good is I leave that skin on there, so I pluck them and leave that skin on the breast.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and I think that, too, helps because now that skin's what's getting charred and, like, crisp versus the edge of your meat. Anyways, uh, you put olive oil on it and uh, shake some uh, cayenne pepper and salt and pepper and um, throw it on uh, – the grill we threw it on the grill at like 400 and cooked it medium rare and then i just have it with some sauteed bell peppers and onions so you just take that throw it in a cast iron with some bear grease and uh cook them hot with uh salt pepper cumin and oregano and um yeah it's a good little like the uh the edge of the skin on the teal gives you a little zip with that cayenne on there yeah and then the actual flavor of the the meat complements that and then you have your side that has some cumin and oregano in it so it's kind of like a nice little i don't know like kind of southwestern tasting duck meal um and it's really tasty
0: do you know if like that skin helps retain some of that um spice that you season like with ducks and turkeys and all that stuff if you have and chicken too I don't, I don't know about routine.
1: It is interesting because if you were to put the spice directly on the meat, I feel like the meat would start to absorb some of it and it kind of goes throughout oh, the meat. Yeah. But when I put yeah. it on the skin, it almost seems like it doesn't because it's fat. So I feel mm-hmm. like it doesn't absorb it, which actually makes it like more potent when you like it's on the surface yeah. and it hits it hits your it's almost like it hits your tongue and it's mixing with the fat when you're chewing it versus like in the meat. If you were to salt or rub something down for like an hour, that starts to get into the actual meat. I don't know mm-hmm. if it does. I don't know if it does with the skin, but it, it, it tastes really good. I mean, yeah. and when you're, and when you're, the other thing about it though is when you're grilling it, that skin is melting some of that fat out of there and transporting, yeah. transporting that spice all over. Yeah. But I also found for out sure. that maddie maddie does not like duck
0: (laughs) oh that's all right
1: and that's that's for sure because there's not much better than grilled teal
0: Mm -hmm. i mean true teal is very
1: good duck so if if you don't like teal you probably just don't like duck and i've noticed that there's like a decent amount of people who um don't like the taste of duck and it's it's really hard for me to comprehend. And a lot of people have to tell me over and over that it is the duck that they don't like the taste of. And I'm always like, Oh, it's just people don't know how to cook. And, you know, like just like with venison or pronghorn, which those ones, if you don't like venison or pronghorn, that's cooked correctly. Yeah. I guess you just don't like meat, but yeah. yeah, Duck has a very specific taste to it, which I like, but I guess some people that taste they don't like. And Yeah, almost like people who have uh that cilantro gene where it's like you taste cilantro and it tastes like soap ever heard of that it's it's uh
0: no but i remember you saying that
1: (laughs) yeah there's a subset of people um one of my friends kelly she has that where she can't have cilantro and anything because it just tastes like soap and i i don't know if it's a genetic thing i don't know if you could learn to like the taste of duck or if there's something in the duck meat that certain subset of people just do not like but um
0: sets off your taste buds in a certain way yeah yeah so that's okay though i'm not
1: a great duck hunter so i'm not gonna have a whole bunch of ducks lying around we'll stick to that for the most
0: part you had to be uh somewhat of a duck hunter to acquire those so
1: yeah yeah. so um we're talking about mule deer today and uh both of us uh got on bucks and uh i ended up uh killing one and uh so now my deer tag is full and it's pretty early to have my deer tag be full i mean we're recording this on november 7th i killed that buck on november 1st that might actually be the the earliest buck i've ever killed
0: is that that's one week in the season right that's
1: our season started. General season started on October. Let's see here. It was October twenty first. Mm-hmm. So this would have been, yeah, about ten day, tenth, tenth day of the season. Cool. But we'll get to that story in a little bit. But what I'm what I'm pointing out is that, now yes. I have time to do things I would never do during deer rut. I'm still going out. Folks, don't worry. I'm still going out with my buddy to hunt mule deer, even though I don't have a tag. And I'm going to go out and probably try to shoot a whitetail doe with a bow and a week in my tree stand so I can still be in the whitetail woods while they're out grunting and snorting and running around. Um, But I went out and did some waterfowling, which I haven't killed a duck or a goose since 2020. I think we talked about this in the last podcast about the rest of our season have you decided if you're going to go out and try to find some geese ryan
0: yeah i don't know you don't we'll know see. <laughs> yeah
1: well so i i was sitting in that tree stand i think i was saying on the last podcast and there was a lot of ducks and geese flying around in that area so after i tagged out on my deer i went back in there and yeah um two days there i got almost a two-day limit uh so i was two birds shy on the first day and the second day i got my limit a uh, mix of teal and mallards. And so, yeah, I spent a bunch of time cleaning those up, talking to Matt Hogan about how to uh, render the fat to make some duck oil. I did not do that correctly. In fact, about an hour before this podcast, my entire apartment was full of smoke because I tried to finish it off hot to make sure I cooked anything that was in there like blood and, uh, kind of went and took a shower and that blood and stuff started to hot. burn. Um, yeah. So I don't know how that oil is going to turn out. I'm going to have to try that again, but I love getting different types of game in the freezer. And so I was out there and a mix of actually decoying ducks, like a real waterfowler. And then also a decent amount of jump shooting and ground swatting ducks, which I have no shame in doing because I'm going out there to eat them.
0: So I agree. <laughs> so.
1: What are you even up to Ryan?
0: Oh yeah, me, I don't know, just just working. So um like usual I guess in the fall I picked the wrong job. But yeah, we've we've been working, you know, um trout spawn in the fall time fall time. So work at a state fish hatchery and we deal a lot with spawning trout, lake trout and brook trout, and right now we have our our um Minnesota heritage brook trout that are actually uh, spawning in the wild. So we um, have a brood stock at our hatchery that is actually taken from gametes from the wild. So each year we got to do this to replenish those gametes to create our production lots. It's probably too much for a lot of people. But um, so we're out there right now. Today didn't go as well as planned. So we only got nine females that we're ready so we want 50 pair um meaning females cross with the male so we need 50 so 41 left so we'll be spawning next week too but but yeah it's a it's a cool little program we have
1: yeah that's sweet i i have a question for you um yeah you said you picked the wrong job, which you you didn't pick the wrong job. It's actually, I, that was sarcastic. It yeah, conflicts was... a little bit sometimes. <laughs> well, you picked the wrong species because if you were working with spring yes. spawners, then you'd have a lot of time, right, to hunt in the fall besides stocking them. Um, yeah. And uh, but my question was, for me personally, you know, I grew up fishing and I I, I love fishing, but mm. and I think it's the same thing with hunting. Uh, my, my love of it is being able to handle and interact with those animals. So now that I work as a fisheries technician and I'm always handling a lot of times bigger fish than I'll ever be able to catch on a hook and line that satisfies that need for me. So people would be like, you know, does it ruin it for you? I don't know if, I don't know if I would say it ruins it for me because the whole reason I go to fish, unless I want to eat fish is to go and handle and look at fish where they are. And I can go and do that other ways through my job way more efficiently and see bigger fish. And so like, you know, a lot of people, that's, that's the way most people interact with a big brown trout or something is that they have to go out and they have to angle it. And it's super rare to hold a 25 plus inch brown trout in your hands because it's really difficult to catch them and, and land them. But I can go do that pretty regularly when we're doing surveys, I get just as giddy holding, holding a big brown trout that I didn't catch with the hook and line just because it's a cool animal and I get to hold it for you. Is that, um, I mean for hunting that does obviously hunting is totally different for me. Uh, if I worked in wildlife, yeah. I don't think that would have filled my need to go hunt. But yeah. for you, like when you're at work, is that, are you wishing that you went out and were fishing at that point? Or is that kind of the same for you where it's like, you get to hold all these fish and see all these fish or because you're in a hatchery setting, would you rather actually go and catch some fish?
0: I think, you know, just like you, Oh, like, I, I don't really need to go fishing, but I do love my job and what I do because hopefully I like to see when the fishery is doing better, you know, just in the same circumstances doing these brook trout, it's like, okay, now we have these heritage genetics that we're kind of weaning out and putting in better species for these anglers. They should grow bigger. They should be more competitive with the brown trout in these areas. And so I, you know, I, I, it makes me happy to see anglers and stuff when they report back to us and it gets back to us and to see these fish that they're catching and things like that, that gets me more giddy than handling these. And, but it is like I did say, you know, I picked the wrong job, but I didn't because fall time. I do love the one thing I do love in the world is spawning fish. I don't know why it's just handling and spawning fish and the eggs and all that stuff. That is that's a good time of year. I always people look at me weird when I'm smiling and squeezing fish and stuff. But it's uh yeah,
1: probably it's feels a, very productive.
0: That's yeah. That, maybe that's what it is. It's like okay, this is all next generation. All the fish we stocked, they're all gone. Now this is the next. This is the next whole group that we're gonna yeah. be putting out there for everybody. Yeah.
1: And when did you start? You started uh, hatchery work in Utah. Um, yeah. You went out there for. I think you went out there for an invasive species tech job initially, and then you you mm-hmm. got into the hatchery system there in uh, Southern Utah there and. Um, We're not going to say exactly where, I guess, because we were talking about where you were hunting, Uh, but (laughs) uh, that kind of rolls right into how you got to know this area where you drew a mule deer tag for this year.
0: Yeah, exactly. So I worked out there for five years and then here for three and a little bit now, so... I'm about ready to retire. No, I'm kidding. But <laughs> so, so um, yeah, I lived out in Utah. I hunted one time there and shot my first mule deer in, I don't know what year it was, but it was, it was four years ago. Cause I was just looking, you know, looking at this story and I'm like, how long did it take for me to draw this tag? So I was a resident and usually residents in this area, it's a general deer unit. They can draw every other year pretty much, but me, it took four years points to accumulate I probably could have drove on the third year but um, yeah so yeah
1: i know that it was 2019 because i was in grad school and i was uh i remember the day that you killed that deer and we're talking about how we always this is funny because we (laughs) we always communicate about what we're up to and just Mm -hmm. like we were talking about in the last podcast with that hunt you were on um you, I think you were having a little bit of like a long hunt with some difficult like situations. You had a lot of opportunities, but not really sealed the deal yet. And then it's getting towards the end of it. I think, right. You didn't have that much time yeah. left and you, you texted me or snapchatted me and you're like, okay, I got this group of bucks down there. And you know, they're not huge by any means, but like, I could definitely make a play on these right now. And I'm like, dude, you've been hunting for three weeks or something like that. And I'm like, Mm-hmm. I might as well do it, especially because I think at that point, did you know if you were moving back here yet or not?
0: Uh, at that point, I wasn't. So I had one. I was trying, but it took me a whole year to get back yeah. here. Yeah. So.
1: so anyways, I remember that the day you shot yeah. that mule deer. Um, it had to be like I, September
0: 3rd or something.
1: It was right at the beginning of semester at Eastern Illinois University. And I remember yeah. that um, I I just got day drunk when you, when you called me, I just like decided nice. to celebrate for you. And I went out and I think I was on the phone with you for a while at the actual bar. And then, yeah, I, yeah then I continued to drink on your buck after that, even though your buck was <laughs> in Utah.
0: <laughs> nice, nice, nice. But yeah, so this, you know, like you said, I, I got one in 2019 and I'm like, I actually want like a bigger one. You know, I want to, if I'm going out here, this is a general tag, you know, I'm going to get it every four years or so. I I, I want to shoot a good buck if I'm making the distance from Minnesota all the way to Utah, which was 22, 23 hours. And so the play here was, I just wanted, I didn't have much time. I was a little nervous going into all this because now you haven't lived in a place for three years and your my plan was to go hunt it kind of how i had success in the past and um so number 1 i didn't know if anything's changed you know pressure wise and things like that and then number 2 we had in southeastern minnesota or in or um uh, in um uh, utah we had a bad bad um winter and things so i'm like okay how is that going to affect antler growth just deer surviving and things like that and and yeah i don't know
1: yeah so can you describe kind of you know don't go into too much specifics but describe what the deer hunting was like in that unit when you lived there and when you hunted it previously and then kind of what you feared might have changed with the winter kill and possibly higher hunting pressure. Like what was the set? Like what was the landscape? How many deer, how many types of deer, how many hunters?
0: Yeah. So it was pretty heavily pressured when I was there and I just hunted it enough. And, you know, we have that little knack of finding those pockets where no one is, especially when you're a new hunter in that area. I feel like you're hunted differently than those historic hunters. So hunting pressure was Pretty, pretty, predominant there. A lot of road hunters, ATV guys that never really wanted to hike, which was nice. And then also, it was still a lot high desert, like I said in the intro, which is consisted of a lot of Great Basin sage, bitterbrush, pinion juniper, maybe some north slopes with bowl pine and pinion or uh, ponderosas, but we, I was really keying in on that bitter brush and water. If there was water, bitter brush and privacy, there was bucks there. And that year in 2019, I had multiple um, interactions with really big bucks, like nice, like, yeah, really, really good deer. And I even, that's back when you could run trail cameras and I got pictures of some really nice bucks on trail camera. And so I was expecting that and I had run-ins with them. And just never, never could get on them. Get like fifty yards, wind would bust, and something else, you know. And I just, I was a new hunter, never knew about thermals, all these things, and so, um, I was expecting that same thing. And I don't know if I was naive to do that, but
1: yeah. So what, um, for people who don't know about Utah. Uh, what can you describe what a really big buck is in that area? I know that we don't care that much about inches of antler. We don't care about that, that much about inches of antler because to us, it's all about the story. But, um, just for a frame of reference, what are we talking about down there?
0: Don't, don't mark me on this totally, but I would say an average, a top, like above average deer is probably anything over like 22 inches. I would imagine wide. If I'm saying 22 inches, um, Western terms, that's a 22 inch buck is a 22 inch wide deer. And then, um, a four point, you know, which if you, if it has four points, 22 inch wide, I would say what that puts that at like 140, 150. Probably.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Probably right in that range. Cause my three point from Montana was 22 wide, but it was pretty, pretty shallow forks three point, And that was like a 121
0: okay okay so yeah probably in the 150
1: range-ish depending on how it works yeah
0: yep so that's your average caliber utah is probably one of the best states for mule deer um and it's it's managing you know you get certain states like montana they they manage for um opportunity like getting hunters out there and getting the opportunity to see these deer. And then Utah um, manages a lot of times for quality, even in their general units. This was a general unit, but there's definitely a lot of quality. And I was adjacent to a trophy trophy unit. So that kind of helped to a little um, little bleed over that comes across the road every once in a while.
1: Little similarity to my story.
0: Yep. Yeah, yeah <laughs> definitely <laughs> a pocket of... Yeah. Um, good places to go. But so, like I said, the game plan was to head out there, not knowing what the winter was. I had five to seven days. I, I wrote down right here that I had to hunt because of all the travel and things like that. Um, I was going to try to rough it and get into where I saw those, those deer historically. Cause I was pretty confident I would, I could find deer in those spots that I historically did. And then I was going to camp right on top of them so I could beat that pressure or beat the road hunters in there and then try to locate them quick and put a play on them before anybody else did. Because I ran into that my first year here. Was the everybody just gets up late and they're they're there and they could screw the pooch when you're stalking in on something. So might as well get the game on there. But I mean, like I said, same type of habitat. It laid out pretty good. But so I rolled in on opener, actually opener evening. And rolled into camp. And I got there enough time to to do an evening glass. And I didn't really see too much. It was, it was, I don't know. It was a whole bunch of small bucks. A lot of does. That's one thing that changed big time with that winter. Was the amount of water on the landscape. And I think the fawning success for uh, like a southern Utah population was, was phenomenal. I've never seen so many doubles for um for for does which was which was great but not a lot of big bucks a lot of young ones um and i was pretty tired so i'm like all right evening glass let's get back to the truck let's nap and i'm just gonna try to cover some ground in the morning and try to beat and go to my historic glassing spot so i did that on the on the first day and the first day was pretty rough so I can't remember what hurricane that was that came off the coast of LA. It was Hillary. Yeah, Hillary. It was Hillary. Yes, you're right. Um, And I had some of the worst weather I've ever seen in Utah. I lived there for five years and I've never seen it rain consistently throughout the whole day like this, day after day after day. And I almost felt like I was in Alaska because like the fog would set in. It would rain and it'd be like, okay, I could see a little bit. But then all of a sudden it would stop and all the thermals would start rising. Everything would hit and then the fog would just set in. I couldn't glass. And I'm like, okay, this is making it hard because I don't know where anything is. And I can't glass. I can't use my eyes. So the second day was kind of when I'm like, I'm going to start still hunting some of these areas where I had success in the past. So that second day, I, I hit this one area and... First thing I'd see, it was like 10 o'clock. I tried to do my my morning glass. I couldn't see crap. So I'm going in this one area. And all of a sudden, this three by four, I see him kind of just, I don't know. He was like raking on a tree. But I think he was just eating, eating random stuff. And I don't know what he's doing. But that hillside was really loaded with bitter brush. It was a wind. He was on the leeward side of that, just feeding. I think he was bedded right there. And he just kind of got up and was moving. And luckily, I saw him. So he was a good three by four, and he was probably like twenty four inches wide so now, like we said earlier, a hundred and thirty inch buck is probably a four point that's twenty two you know this one this one was deep forks on the one side, just big tall three point whopping on the other side i mean yeah you're you're talking i would say above one fifty that buck I was saying I was putting them out one fifty one sixty range, and so I'm like cool that's the biggest buck I've seen so far and he's close and I don't know why I didn't put a play on him that first day I just think he was I didn't know the landscape the greatest just kind of getting familiar with everything and I'm like okay there's a buck there and um, all of a sudden it just started raining and pouring and I was just getting drenched and I see him lay down and or go back into the timber and lay down and I didn't know where he was exactly at that point and then I'm like, okay, you know what? There's a buck here. I'm going to pull out. And then the next morning, I'm going to go to this different spot that I've historically had, had bucks and come back and try to get this one in the PM. So I did the same thing. I uh, hiked up to this knoll um, right in, in, the, um, in the dark, got up to the spot. And all of a sudden, it was nice. The sun started coming up. I'm like, okay, I can see. This is sweet. This is going to be good. I finally can see for one day, day three. And then all of a sudden I see a cloud coming over and I'm like, oh, then I just got socked in. So for the next three hours, I find this giant big white spruce and it was leaning enough that it had like one little dry patch about my shoulder width, like under it. So I sat there for the next three hours, just in a ball, just sitting there getting not rained on because I was under the tree, luckily. And, um, all of a sudden it stopped and, uh, I went out and I glassed up a few deer. I walked that ridgeline, didn't see too much. And I'm like, you know what? I got to get my butt back down and a bird in the bush or a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. So I got to go after that three by four. So I went back where that nice buck was and, and for the evening and I set up an area where I was pretty close, probably 200, 250 away. And so I was kind of having a play of like, if he gets out of where I think he's kind of betting, same conditions, um, I can jump down and try to make a, a play on this animal. Um, so I kind of slowly still hunt my way in, glass and stuff like that, get to a kind of vantage point where I can see this whole hillside and um, then just wait. So I sat there, just wait. You know, a lot of this hunting. I feel like is just sitting and waiting. I'm, I'm still hunting areas in my free time, but then also I'm just sitting here and glassing up stuff. So.
1: Yeah. I I was going to ask, um, two things. One, were you seeing any other hunters out there at all? And two, is still hunting something that people do in that area or because of the potential for like a big ass buck and um, the glass ability of a lot of that country, do people generally just stay near a road or a vantage point and look, look, look and wait for the right time to go in? Because if you're still hunting, you come up on a buck and you either can't, or you don't want to shoot it. You're kind of blowing up the area potentially, you know?
0: Yeah. I, I think the pressure was pretty consistent when I saw the, the, Last time I was out there, um, and people were just sticking to the roads. There, were, I didn't really see anybody um, encroaching on where I was too much. If I would still hunt into places or hike into places, there was a lot of activity on the roads. And um, then, I, yeah, I just don't really think people still hunt a lot of times. I've, you know, I lived out there for five years, like I said, and the people that were hunting that a lot of the places where I was, they're like, Ooh, we can't hunt back there. That is some, that's nasty stuff. It's just so heavily timbered. We can't hunt it. And I'm like, what are you talking about? There's, you, you can glass into there. You just got to wait and be methodical and get a headache looking through your glass. But um, yeah, not a lot of people, I don't really think still hunt. They do pretty much spot and stock. They take their ATV to these vantage points, see an animal and make a play. Um, not too much still hunting, but in this situation with the rain and the lack of lack of visibility, that was my best option. I mean, you're talking high desert, dry, crunchy ground rocks that you need to take off your boots and walk in socks sometimes to put a stock on animals. Um, that was my best option was to just still hunt areas. Areas and I, luckily I had historic you know, I've historically hunted this spot, but, um, so that's exactly how I found that three by four. And so back to where I was, was I was sitting there watching for that buck. And as the daylight went down, all of a sudden that buck, that's the first one I see. He gets up out of his apparent bed. What I I would imagine anywhere he was bedded the same way a leeward went a leeward, um, side of the hill, just a small little finger Ridge in in juniper mixed with a lot of bitterbrush. that's the key that's the key for southern utah is bitterbrush, um and so he's just walking his way and he's picking up deer as he goes <laughs> and another good four point but he's that four point was probably 22 20 inches wide and i'm like oh he's not as big that three by four is just a massive buck and he's, he's hitting everybody and like pushing the whole herd, picking up does, picking up other little doll or bucks. So at the time, there's probably like six to eight deer in this, in this little group now. And I'm like, you know what? They're feeding in a consistent route. I think I could try to get down there and jump in there. Like I said, I'm trying to set up where I can kind of just dart off or go after them. And so I parallel them for the next little bit down this finger ridge. I'm on the opposite finger ridge and there's an opening in between us. And it looks like it's funneling down in, in between where timber kind of comes together where they're going to pinch down in. So I, I funnel down in here and I'm like, okay, they're going to cross that pinch and they're going to come over to my side. And um, so I just kind of, I see him one more time and I'm like, okay, they're coming. So I I jet over and I sit where I think they're going to come. And I sit in there, sitting there and uh, nothing ended up coming. (laughs) So I'm like, that's okay. It's a passive play. I'm fine with that. I could have been a lot more aggressive, but I'm like, I've seen this buck do the same thing two nights in a row, same wind pattern tomorrow, same wind pattern, same thing's going to happen, hopefully. So, um, I back out of there quietly, get get to the old four wheeler and drive home, and and um, then I was I talked to you actually.
1: I was actually going to yeah. say that okay. this is where I come yeah. into the story actually because exactly
0: Talk yeah you
1: you call me up and you were like told me exactly what you just described and you're like I mean that seems to me I got him two nights in a row doing the same exact thing. Like that looks like a pattern. And you were, I think, asking me, do I go in in the morning? Cause they're yeah. going somewhere, they're, they're moving somewhere to spend the night feeding or doing whatever. And then they're going to come back up, but you don't know exactly where they're com- coming back from. You know, they're ending up in the same spot to bed. Cause they just came from that spot two nights in a row and they're going down the same, same route, but you're like, I could go right in the morning and get them coming back up. Or I could go somewhere else, different spot, just see what's going on somewhere and uh, not risk the morning. And then hopefully they do the same exact thing in the night at the same time they've been doing it. And then I, I think mm-hmm. I said something like, well, couldn't you just not hunt them in the morning, but glass them from the road and see if they go back. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know. Is that what you did?
0: Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's partially what I did. I'd, Woke up, you know, this is where the whitetail. This is, I feel like the turkey episodes, all this stuff I've done is just sit and wait, methodically pick stuff apart. That's my style. But so I did the same thing, and I'm like, I don't have any idea what they're doing in the morning, and I didn't want to screw it up, you know. Um, and this is a small chunk of public. And I don't want to just push them a little bit. Cause I don't have much leeway if they don't visit this one little spot here. Um, so I went up there crack, crack of dawn right before light, light went up and I kind of saw some deer, some small bucks that were in that group that I saw the day before. And I'm like, I made the assumption. I'm like, he's in the same spot. I saw him. And I, then they went over the crest. I'm like, okay, I can't see, I couldn't see that spot very good from the road. Um, so that was crack of dawn. I'm like, see him. All right. I got out of there. And then I went up the mountain to another spot to try to see some other deer and actually kind of just enjoyed the day driving around, filming some small bucks, seeing a lot of deer. Um, finally was a sunny day after day four, day five, what we're on right now was like just solid socked in the whole first time of the hunt. I, you know, I only got,
1: you got hit with another hurricane from the East, right?
0: Yep. Yep. Two of them. <laughs> yep. Hillary. And then another one came, came through the Gulf and that one wasn't as bad. That was very spotty showers. It didn't last all day. Like Hillary was all day. I mean, massive floods in the desert and stuff. Hurricane Death Utah got, actually
1: got hit with a hurricane.
0: Yep. Exactly. Um <laughs> Which is Valley not what you were hunting,
1: to... but I was just saying that cause it's a funny, funny play
0: on words. Yep. <laughs> Yep. St. George, Utah down in Hurricane there. Yeah. Hurricane, I guess. Hurricane. But so I had him on that PM pattern. So I think I sent you and I think I sent um, uh, soon to be brother-in-law here some like what I was going to do. I made those little um, little uh, drawings on the Onyx maps. And I'm like, what do you think here? Wind's going to be here. Deer's up in this area. And you guys were all like, yep, go get them. So, all right, I sneak in there. That's, the access was key for me. So, this was along a road where I could kind of mimic, like, cancel my noise. Because now it's drying out since Hurricane, uh, the Hurricane Hillary and all this other hurricanes are kind of now past now. So, it's drying out. It's a little louder to walk. And so, I use this road to uh, mask my, my noise. And I'm just walking. I'm walking slow, glassing ahead of me just in case they're... Because this is pretty timbered. It's all pinions, juniper. I don't know if anybody's ever been in the desert. When you're in that stuff, you can't see crap. And it's not... There's not much topography, actually, either, to look. And so I'm walking, masking my scent or my uh, noise when cars are going by. So I'm do-do-do, just walking along. And I t- saw on the map this giant tree juniper tree pinion whatever it was and i'm like that's where they all cross i think and then all of a sudden it gets down into that uh thick wash like deep wash where i'm like they, they gotta be above that they're gonna come right here so i looked at that on the map and i'm like i gotta get to that point so i just slowly picked my way all the way to that point and i actually set up in that uh pinion pine big old pinion pine I probably could have put a tree stand in it actually
1: it's <laughs> <Just> like death <laughs> and, Valley over on the the Ranch there, huh?
0: Yeah. yeah. That white yeah, pine. That, was, <laughs> that white pine, yep. The pine tree that had all the deer die. But, um, so, I just set up in it, kind of blinded myself, and these, these big branches came out where I could shoot through the bottom left and right, um, 50 yards where was my range, and I was set up, I kind of took my boots off, so I was in my socks, nice and quiet, set up my camera, tripod, all, and... All of a sudden, I look. I'm like, oh, doe. I'm like, oh, okay, all right. Doe, doe right there. Oh, another doe. Oh, boom. There's that buck. That buck's right behind these does. And uh nice big velvet three-point. I could see his left side was a big, nice three-point side. So he comes down to this pinch. And I'm screwing with my damn camera, trying to flip it on. You know, Right on the top, there's kind of a switch where you can flip it on. And I'm hitting it and it wouldn't turn on, and then all of a sudden, I'm like, screw it, but by that time, the deer came down to that pinch, and he's looking kind of my way, and I'm like, oh, shit, so I drew back, and that deer looks at me, and kind of like, you could see, moves his neck like out, like, what the heck are you doing, or what are you, and so at this time, it was perfect, he came down right at this little tiny tree that I ranged at 40 yards. So I'm like, he's past it. He's 44 yards. um, And so I'm like 40 yard pin, put a little high on him, just a little bit, bit above the heart and let her rip. So um, I pulled back. He was looking at me weird. And I'm like, he, he's a dead deer. All right, put it right on him. I'm calm, collective, screwing my camera that didn't help but so i i let go and when you let go and you shoot your bow i feel like you can kind of just see the arrow with your eye you know you can see the whole flight of that arrow if it tails whatever it does and i just remember the arrow going down and i felt as that if i pulled the trigger that deer took a step enough and i see my arrow go right under the his back leg and, like, his belly, and I remember just, like, son of a, like, I swore right out loud after, right after I pulled the shot, I'm, like, I think I missed that damn deer, like, what the hell just happened, I'm like, I was right on him, I, I didn't know what, I'm, like, I can't pull that much, but, so, ended up,
1: and you, you messaged me and said you missed a big one,
0: yep, yes, exactly, (laughs) I, yeah, Message you, said it missed. But then I'm like, you know what? I better, it was freaking close. I'm like, I better go check that arrow. So I walked over out there at 40 yard. Cause I could see the arrow kind of behind it where it just kind of dulled. And, um, I, uh, grabbed the arrow and it had some blood and I'm like, okay, I hit him, but I know this isn't a good shot where I saw my arrow go. So Ended up tracking him, gave him some time, a decent amount of time. Ended up tracking him, good blood, and I'm like, okay, maybe, maybe something happened here. Track, track, track. Um, what, what was, was the?
1: Uh, what did the arrow look like? The blood on the arrow? Yeah.
0: So it was blood on the arrow, but it was you know greasy, fatty, yeah. like paunch or something. And I'm like, Yep, yeah, not, not good. So. I started tracking him, good blood, but he was walking the whole time and I'm like, that's usually not a good sign. Most deer I've ever seen just walking, um, isn't a good sign. So kept, kept tracking him and I'm like, shit, he's going towards that private property. And then all of a sudden he doubles back on me and I was just walking, seeing his trail and I looked and then I take like two, three steps and all of a sudden I look up and there he is, he gets out of the bed and that's the last time I saw him. So he got up just over the horizon. And so I kind of moved quickly to my left to try to get a better angle shot on him because there was a tree in my way.
1: And how far so I was ran.
0: he? He was probably like 40 yards at that point. And so I left or I ran like kind of to my left and towards him, like boom, 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 like five, six steps quick run. Cause he wasn't moving fast. He was just going slow and limping. And I'm like, Oh, all right. And I was I didn't even pull back actually. And he went into the trees there and I just couldn't even see him to shoot. And so there he went. And so I'm like, all right, I'm backing out. I'm getting out of here. So I loop back around, backed out, took my trail all the way out just to not leave scent or anything in that whole area. And, um, then went back in the morning and talked to you, showed you the blood where he was and all that stuff. And I'm like, "I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what happened. I know it wasn't a good shot. So, so I went back in the morning, found that trail and I ended up tracking him another mile and a half from that point. And this is where I kicked myself. There was still a little bit of daylight that I could have, I could have probably pushed the issue a little bit, um, and kept on him because he was not running. He was walking. He was just limping all the whole way. And he actually was just paralleling me for a period when I was walking out and then he dipped off and went into the wash and stuff. But, um, I just wish I would have stuck on him. Cause even talking to my boss, he's like, just the behavior of mule deer, just like whitetails, you know, they know you're kind of there. They still have their wits about them. They are hurt severely. Um, but I wish I would have forced the issue a little bit more or even called him and, and help me track at least and, and not even push the issue on a gut shot like that. I would, I wish I would have just got out. He would have laid up there and I could have potentially got on him the next day. He probably would have still been alive or potentially dead. Um, Wait,
1: are you saying you, you wish you would have gone, gone harder after him or just completely pulled out and then like, tried to I, would, I wish,
0: him? I wish one of two things. I would have went harder after him and kept on his trail because I think I could have caught up and got a follow-up shot. Or number two, I wish I wouldn't even attract period and just backed out. Yeah. To, to potentially
1: glass him again.
0: Yep. Potentially to, yeah. you know, I saw where he betted like to potentially get him and get, like, yeah, get on him and get another follow-up shot that way versus yeah. pushing him.
1: But either way, um, you're saying that you were, yeah. Either way, you, you were trying to get a follow-up shot, period.
0: Exactly. Yep. That was kind of going through my mind. I'm like, I'm going to, probably come after a live animal and I'm gonna have to shoot again but so I ended up just spending the next two days zigzagging cresting that whole thing finding his track again throwing another almost a mile on of his track and just tried my heart out to try to get him but then then the hunt came to a close and that was it no good no good ending to it but (laughs) it was yeah it was
1: (coughs) I mean those are tough ones uh I mean, what, what do we always say is if you bow hunt long enough, it's going to happen. It's going to happen to you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's happened to me a handful of times. It, it probably really stings when it's um, that big of a, a trip and a, a draw tag. Uh, but, yeah. um, but I mean, like you did, you did decide to go after that buck after you had wounded it and pretty much throw out – the possibility of getting on a different deer. I mean, that, that was it. Once you had hit that deer, you had committed to that deer, which I think is, is a pretty good thing to do. Um, a a lot of people, especially if it was a tag, like you're talking about where it took you two, three years to draw it. A lot of people might have been like, well, that's a lost cause. Even sometimes even like immediately after seeing what the shot was like and only tracking it for like a a little bit and then being like, well, we're never going to find that one anyway. And I think that it's important to do your, you know, due diligence, commit to that kind of thing. Um, keeps you honest, keeps, keeps you, uh, keeps your respect to the animal. Um, I,
0: th- I think too, you know, like as, uh, as hunters hunting and getting a clean shot is, is great and all, but even sometimes the cleanest shots, they, they entail a large track and, um, that is totally part of hunting is your tracking ability and reading that animal. And that will only help you when that animal is alive and not have an arrow or a bullet through it, you know, and seeing how that animal moves, reading his body language just through track, which is, which is good. But yeah, another,
1: yeah. So, I mean, so you think that that animal jumps your string.
0: Um yeah. Or do you think I, he was
1: just stepping one or the other?
0: I, I think he was stepping as I let go because he was he was stuck in his he was stuck in his tracks and he stuck his neck out to see what I am and that and you know that's probably not that's where I went wrong is if I wouldn't have screwed with my dang camera, I probably would have got a deer that was just slowly walking down and I would have shot and maybe nothing would've happened but hindsight's twenty twenty, But but um, yeah, I think that deer was just going to make, like, two steps to kind of see what I am from a different angle, and I think that's when I pulled the trigger, was when he was stepping, because I just simultaneously, you know, that two, like, split second of what you remember when that arrow was in the ground, was I, I just see him step, and my arrow go right under his belly. And
1: I think that's actually like a huge, huge difference, um, between, you know, in the Midwest people basically tree stand hunt or, or blind hunt like that. You're sitting in one spot, a deer comes into your setup, which you have manicured to make sure that you have shooting lanes. And this is exactly where I'm going to draw. This is exactly where I'm going to shoot when the deer stops at this point. Um, I I don't think it's really difficult to describe how the uh, unknown plays into Western hunting when you're actually going after animals versus waiting for them to present a shot. Mm-hmm. The variables go through the roof. We talked about that mm-hmm. with my elk hunt, how even a 12 yard shot uphill angle quartering to elk moving fast. I mean, yep. <laughs> The, and those are the situations you're going to have to shoot it, like you. You're not going to have your deer in a food plot shooting it out of a, a tree stand, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah.
1: not to not to downplay that. I mean, that that's still a, a difficult thing to pull off. But um, you have to make so many snap them. decisions yeah. when you're hunting in the West.
0: Yeah, I, I think too, even those public land hunters out there for whitetail, it's like you're setting up constantly, setting up and taking down in those areas. You can't turn branches and same situation. You've got to definitely have some adversity and thinking on your feet through everything. Mm-hmm. But it my, my situation, you know, was a little manicured because... Manicured it's so like, okay, I am hunting in one spot location and he came down and I kind of had, I, I know I had to kind of crouch and, you know, aim and stuff, but yeah. But, but it's, even
1: even just the, the fact that you have to constantly be ranging when you're moving, like you yeah. are moving, so you have to be constantly ranging yeah. just that alone. Yeah. I mean, when you're in a tree stand, you have all day to be like, yep, that twig you know is 28 yards that, you know, whatever. But yeah. um. Yeah, so I mean, it is a yeah, man. That, the ending of that 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 is really disappointing for me too to see that happen with the yeah, you know, big hunt and whatnot. But um, I think especially the especially
0: the circumstances of the rain and all that, and and end that way. It's like, well, you know, I gutted it out. I was out there in the rain, and that rain actually helped me find this buck, and um just by still hunting and um, yeah, I just, I'm like, sweet, you know, I might get some after this like just crappy weather that no one would be out here for. And at least to get a shot at that, you know, I I was happy with that at least.
1: That that was what I was going to say as a takeaway is that um, you were dealt a really bad hand of a totally different situation than you ever hunted or saw there when you were just living there. And Mm -hmm. adopting, adopting a new method with the conditions, with the still hunting, like, I mean, that's what you have to do. A lot of people like we're talking about, if you're going after a large buck in that kind of an area and what you do to do that is do a lot of glassing and you sit and wait for the situation to be just right. So you go in after a single deer and you don't blow the whole area out. If you're that kind of hunter and you know, it's different too, because other people that live there have a lot more time in the season versus you had a week or whatever. Um, they're going to sit that out. They're going to be like this week of weather is just not going to, that's not how it's not going to be conducive to how I hunt and I'm not going to hunt. Whereas you had, you know, you had a certain amount of time to make things happen. And like you were saying, the deer are not moving that much in that kind of weather. So you have to go and find them. There is a lot more of, uh, you know, there's less noise because it's wet out. So that's an advantage to you. So moving is not as big of a risk as it is when it's dry. And then when you did that, I mean, ultimately, it still seemed like similar situation to uh, when it doesn't rain for five days straight when you actually hunted that buck. But during the time it was raining is when you figured them out and you weren't just sitting in your you know, RV or camper or whatever you had there and just sitting yep. out, you were, you were out there, you were out there actually doing what the deer were doing or is huddling underneath a tree, not yep, moving. Exactly. That's <laughs> what
0: I thought too. It's like, you know, this is a good spot. This is where a deer would be. It's like, okay, I got to yeah. find these spots out on the mountain. Yeah. So
1: yeah, I mean, getting, getting in range, getting a shot and all that.
0: I mean, yeah.
1: Unlucky with how it all ended and, and still good on you to, to track that thing for a day and a half, two days, whatever it was. Um, but I think, and we've gone through this story pretty detailed. It's a good story, you know, not the greatest ending, but I think we're going to have to go for a a two parter. If we want to keep this Mm on a reasonable one episode about my buck. However, um, yeah. What, what was your main takeaway from that? I mean, I think I just kind of went through what I thought. Uh, to take home from that hunt, unfortunately, not a buck, but uh, a lot of yeah. perseverance, a lot of adaptation to the
0: situation. I I think my main takeaway there was just you know you got to keep on it, and as bad as rain and that weather is, you got to find a positive in it. And the positive there was me stalking on a deer because that's one of the hardest things when you're doing spot and stock is getting in those animals cause they got amazing sound or like uh, hearing and uh good smell all that stuff so i mean that puts their one scent at bay or the one sense at bay when you can sneak in there pretty quick and but well, you just gotta yeah
1: that actually brings up another point about the the um way to go there definitely is uh still hunting because if you had multiple bouts of rain not only yeah. is the ground soft and you don't make noise, which is their main defense, but their other main defense is their nose. And that you're even if you go in there and you don't kill a buck, you're going to have your scent, your ground scent's going to be gone.
0: Mm-hmm. Um. Yep, so yeah, sure. all
1: the more reason to go in there and be aggressive in that kind of a situation.
0: Yeah. No, it was worth toughing it out, and and then also I feel like a lot of times in those wind and elements or whatever you're dealt with, um, it, when you're out there you're starting to think like those animals and be like, Oh, this is a cozy spot. This is where I need to be. So it's like, oh, yeah. oh, it's a leeward side of a Ridge with like overhead covers. Okay. Now you can go to your mapping service and look for all those features and highlight small areas. Cause what do they say? Like, I don't know, 90% of the animals exist in 10% of the cover or something like that. Or I don't know. That's some made up. Yeah. Stat,
1: I, I think that people say that for almost everything, like 90% of the fish are in 10% of the lake and like, yeah. uh, you know, 90% of the antlers are in 10% of the bedding. you know, like, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean the concept, yeah. The actual numbers yeah. vary, but the concept is mm. the same. Like there are areas especially in specific situations, there are areas animals use and lots of areas that they don't. Yeah. Or, or maybe yeah. they use everything throughout the day, but they spend more time in certain parts, yeah. you know?
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, for sure. But,
1: well, so uh, are you putting in for that unit again? Yep,
0: yeah, definitely. <laughs> we'll uh, see that hopefully in another three to four years. I might switch units um, just to get a you know more success after like three years maybe, but um, we'll see. I'm definitely going to do Utah again. That's a great state for mule deer, so might as well keep trying.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, and I'm living in Montana and hunting mule deer here, and uh, I would say it's a great state to kill a mule deer. I don't know if you're going to be finding if you're finding a buck like you were talking about that you were hunting there a lot of places around here, you're going to be putting in a lot more work and a lot more time to find that deer. And you're going to have to be ready to go home without a deer because those guys are hard to find. And the only way you're going to kill one of those is being willing to eat your tag. If you don't see that deer. Um, So I didn't shoot that large of a deer, but I shot a pretty decent deer and we're going to tell that story right here coming up next. But I think we're kind of out of time for this round we didn't think this was going to be a two-parter, but yeah. you know these stories. <laughs> no. These stories are so near and dear to our hearts, and have so many details that are important. And I think that hopefully, y'all like listening to all of it. Kind of paints the whole picture and get a get an idea of what went down. But um, we're gonna we're gonna go into my story here on the next episode. Coming at you right about now.